Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Adam Smith, and today I'm delighted to be your host. Uh, before I introduce today's topic and our fantastic guest, I just wanted to remind you that uh, this podcast is just one small part of the NIHR Dementia Researcher Service. Uh, on our website, you'll find uh, jobs, events, funding opportunities, and we publish blogs and articles every day discussing the latest research and uh, lots of careers advice and top tips for a successful career. Did I say top tips? Wrong? Top tips. I like saying top tips. Top tips. Um, we also host uh, webinars and we have a useful resources section and a busy WhatsApp community. So please do take a look and register for our Friday weekly bulletin. Okay, enough with the sales pitch. Um, in our last podcast two weeks ago, you'll recall that we were joined by four PhD students who were at the very early stages of, of their journey. And uh, today we're going to follow up on that theme. And I'm pleased to be joined by three people who we've met before uh, in previous, previous podcasts uh, and who have come out the other side of, of their PhDs and can now call themselves doctor. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Anna Volkmer. Hello, Anna. Hello. Dr. Chris Hardy. Hi, Chris. Hello. Uh, Dr. James Fletcher from King's College. Hi, Adam. And uh, I'm also joined by somebody you met last week who is uh, Chloe Tulip, who is uh, uh, nine months into her PhD at Swansea University. Hi, Chloe. Hi. And uh, Chloe's joining us today because she's going to join in the interrogation. Uh, anybody who joined last week will recall that uh, what we talked about was um, how to find your feet. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to follow up on that and get some advice from three fantastic people who we're going to drop some knowledge on us for anybody who uh, particularly is in their first years of uh, a PhD or thinking about starting. Uh, starting. Well, hello, everybody, again. Thank you for joining us today. Maybe I'm going to just go around the Zoom, first of all, and ask you each to introduce yourselves. And I'm going to work from the top left of my screen. So I'm going to come to you first, Anna. Hi, Anna. Hello. So thank you for having me. So I am a speech and language therapist by background and I do research into um, developing interventions for people with language-led dementias and um, I started my NIHR funded PhD back in 2015 and I did it part-time and finished just recently. So I think including all my amendments all officially I uh, finished on the 11th of June, which was also my 40th birthday. <laughs> Congratulations. So that's all very, so everything's very fresh for you then. Oh, yes. And did, how long did you do that over? Was this three years, five years or so you were working as well? Uh, so I did it part time, um, just shy of four days. So it's 75% over four years with the funding. And then after the fourth year, I actually started working back three days in the NHS and uh, finished off the final bits of my PhD while I was still working. But I chose to do it part-time because I had small children when I first started as a mature student. So you have that extra challenge of parenting, working and studying. 
they're, they're fairly self-sufficient now. I've rehabilitated the children, so they're independent and I can focus on my work. It's great. Well done. And James, let's come to you next. Yeah, so I'm a sociologist by background. Um, my PhD focused on role negotiation in informal dementia care, um, people who don't really engage with services for whatever reason. Uh, and I finished that back in 2008, so I'm less fresh than Anna. Uh, and since then, sort of not really intentionally, my research has focused more on dementia research itself, which sounds a bit odd. It's sort of dementia research or inception, um, but it's moved in that direction in various ways. Thanks, James. So you're researching the research and clearly a lot older than you actually look. Um, I just sort of rushed through. So I'm one of those people who, one of those people who went straight from uni back into uni, did my PhD just under three years. So I've, that's were you a child, baby face. Were you, were you a child genius? Did you finish your PhD at 22 and, and you've just kept going professor at 30? <laughs> I, was, I was very much not a child genius. I was a late <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. And um, we'll uh, come to Chris next. Chris, you'll know uh, from previous episodes, hosted for us before. Um, classic episodes such as How to Get Funding um, from, from our fantastic archive. Uh, Chris, could I ask you to introduce yourself? Yes, hello. Um, so I'm a psychologist by background um, and I completed my PhD at the Dementia Research Centre at UCL in 2017. Um, I'm now still carrying on my research from my PhD. Um, I've got a personal fellowship from uh, Action on Hearing Loss and the Dunhill Medical Trust. And I've also now just recently taken on a part-time role as an education officer for uh, the charity Rare Dementia Support. That sounds interesting. And congratulations on the new, on the new work. And always looking for new opportunities. Nothing better to do, no? Anyway, it's sort of, uh, I'm very excited about it, but it is a sort of, pandemic inflicted in that my research had to completely pause because I, I do research with uh, with patients and uh, obviously that's that's had to stop since March so um, so this has been a very something I'm very grateful for that opportunity to do something which means that I can go part-time on my research uh, in, the, in the hope that one day we will be able to start up our research again. Well it's nice as well if you can combine something you're passionate about as well with work then yeah. it doesn't feel like work right? Exactly yeah. And Chloe, um, so everybody who joined us last week will have met you already, but can I ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name's Chloe. I am studying for my PhD at Swansea University. Uh, I'm about nine months in and I'm looking at the influence of sleep on psychophysiological and cognitive functions in healthy older people and people with vascular dementia. Um, I'll be doing some neuroimaging studies with near-infrared spectroscopy and I'll be looking at mismatch negativity as well, which is um, a component of event-related potentials, which just looks at auditory change detection. So the profiles are very different for healthy people and people with dementia. So it can be used as an early diagnostic tool. Um, and I'll also be doing some emotional memory consolidation stuff. So just a few different things all together to build up a bigger picture. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I'm fascinating subject as well. Um, so let's get into this. We're, we're going to have a slightly different format today. So rather than the usual 
to and fro conversation that I'm going to go around and ask everybody to share their tip uh, for early career researchers that are just starting their PhDs. And we're going to go around everybody to get their top three tips. We're going to go around in turn and we'll pick up on them afterwards. And then hopefully this episode particularly will be of interest to, to those who are just starting out. So uh, who shall I pick on first? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you first, Anna. You're looking confident. You're also at the top left-hand corner of my screen, which always feels like a natural place to start. <laughs> Fine, that's perfect. I spent a bit of time thinking about it today. I wrote down a few and then prioritised them. So I think probably my top tip for the very beginning of my PhD was around setting a timeline and setting some goals. So I had to write a Gantt chart when I um, submitted my funding proposal. And initially I was a bit snooty about it, actually. <laughs> I thought, what's the point? Um, but actually what I realised was as soon as I started my PhD that I felt really like I had a real structure, that I knew what I was doing. I think partly having come from another job role where I was quite hectic, I was coming into a totally different job. So it gave me loads of structure and I found that very helpful. But equally, when I looked at my colleagues, my peer PhD um, colleagues, I and friends, um, I found that they, there was a few of them who felt quite lost. And having this uh, Gantt chart that was quite detailed meant I felt that I knew what I was supposed to be doing from week to week, from day to day, from month to month. And it felt really satisfying to tick it off as well. I'm a ticker offer. Really enjoyed it. Me, me too. I like having a list to tick things. Uh, James, does that resonate with you? Uh, completely. And actually, the, maybe not the Gantt chart at that sort of macro level, but I think at an everyday level, if you can have the structure of treating it as a job, if you have a sort of nine to five, you go into the office or you do something like that, um, which doesn't work for everyone. Some people want to work at midnight in the bedroom, and that's also fine. But if you can structure it in, in terms of sort of a more traditional job that can be amazing for just getting you to plow through the work because it's self-structuring and you know the PhD is very unstructured it's left to you so actually having any external even artificial structure can be really helpful. Fantastic how about you Chris? Yeah no I definitely agree um, and actually something I did um, I think on really early into my PhD was I, I made a I don't know if people still use Facebook nowadays, but at the time we all used Facebook and I made a Facebook event and I invited all my friends and family to, to come. And that was for three years in the future when I was going to submit my thesis. And that really worked for me because that was um, a load of social pressure to, to get it done by that point in time. I'd, I was lucky in that we didn't have any pandemics during my PhD, so I did have to delay it, but that, that really helped me to keep on track and it, it felt really good when I met that deadline and, and that event happened. Well, that was confidence for you. So Anna, do you go further than that? So do you, do you start off with like a, a high level structure, like your Gantt chart with some overall three months, say quarterly objectives. And then do you, you, you said you're a list ticker. Do you break that down into stuff I want to do this week and this month or? Oh yes, absolutely. I, I, yeah, so it's very macro level. I have all the key components of the, 
project or that I'm working on. So I'm actually, I've, I've been awarded some more funding, actually. I'm going to start it on the 1st of October. And I've already been thinking how I'm going to plan the activities that I said I'd do into which months and weeks. But then, yeah, I, I always drive down to the day and the week and I have a diary and I, I'm a bit, I have a, a paper diary and in it I have my list of activities that I need to get done by the end of the week. Clinical list, because I'm currently working clinical and my kind of research academic stuff and I literally have to cross it off each week. And every Friday I transfer it over to the next week. I love it. It, make, it makes me feel like I'm somehow winning. Like you're in control. There yeah. are apps for that as well, of course. I mean, I, I personally use Trello. I don't know if anybody uses the Trello app. I love having the little boxes that you can drag and drop into your done column. To do, done. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's, and it's got a good app as well, so you can do it on your smartphone too. Um, Chloe, uh, I, I know from talking last time, you, 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 you're one of those people that James isn't in so much as you do keep like to work to your own hours that that works for you how how do you get along do you agree with the list keeping have you d tried that yet is that something you do um so yeah that's one of the questions that i'd like to ask you guys because i think i would really love to have a gantt chart and things where i can sort of box off into weeks and months and things like that but I feel like I'm still at the stage where I'm not really 100% crystal clear on what I'm doing. Um, and so I kind of know, like I said in my intro, you know, I've got like the three major components, but it's really, I find it really difficult to plan that far ahead if I don't know what I'm doing. It's a bit like rubbing a crystal ball in a way. So do you guys have any advice for that? I mean, I would suggest that, um, that even if you make a Gantt chart, you don't have to completely get to it religiously. So I confess that as I continued over my PhD, some things moved forward and some things moved back and some things became more detailed and some things dropped off. Um, and really, so it was a macro level, like you say, having three or, or the main components and plotting out that I might do a paper from one and plotting out and that I might, present at the conference because I knew it was going to be around that time of year and then it really helped in supervision for example when I was with my supervisors working out what I really wanted to prioritize in the conversations but I did always amend the Gantt chart as necessary particularly when I did my upgrade um, and I was really like my research project was becoming more and more refined and, and detailed and I knew where I was heading that was a great time actually to do a complete overhaul of my um timelines how about you chris do you have anything to add to that no not really I, I think that sounds really sensible and i think i think phds you do have to be really um, sort of adaptive and reactive to, to the challenges that you'll inevitably face and then you know cannot possibly envisage happening so i think it's helpful to have sort of a, a broad outline of of sort of your, your basic timeline when you would like to upgrade when you'd like to get a paper submitted, but you know, to, to, to also be kind to yourself and acknowledge that, you know, if, if that doesn't happen, that's, that's okay. There's, there's probably a reason for that. Um, yeah. It's a bit like writing really, I guess it, it's that f uh, even uh, until you sit down and try and force yourself to do it, I think you'll find there are things you can put in. There are some goals to set. And once you start, once you 
force yourself to sit down and have a go, you might find that there's more to go in it than you expect. Um, right, tip number two. James, we're going to come to you for, for your first tip. Yeah, so my, my first one is, is the most contentious. So people may disagree with this. But this is, you know, it's based on my experience of me and my experience of other PhDs that I was with. Um, I would suggest that often during the PhD, it can be useful to read less and to write more, but also to talk more. So I think lots of people are always, you know, at least Anna's nodding, I'm happy now. <laughs> I'm not totally off the mark. But I think a lot of people get really bogged down with, I don't know enough, I'm not an expert enough yet. So the answer to that is to read more. But you have, I don't know what that thing's called in psychology, but basically the more you know about something, you know, the more you know you don't know. So you're less of an expert in a sense. So reading doesn't make you feel more confident in that sense. Reading doesn't necessarily give you what you think it's going to give you what does give you that i mean what gave me that was talking to people so going to the office and speaking to people over coffee you learn all sorts of things that you'd have never thought of and just like tacit little things about the culture of academia and how things work in a department even things that seem inconsequential that can be really useful and also talking extends to social media so things like twitter i i love twitter and I've had conversations with, you know, professors and people I've never spoken to otherwise, but you can, you know, slide into the DMs. You can have a bit of a chat about things. You can always email people. They're really nice. So speaking to people can be really useful um, as opposed to just reading and trying to plow through everything that's been written on that subject. And then just writing, you know, even if you, even if it's rubbish, um, write lots of stuff, see what works, see what doesn't. You'll see where there are gaps in your knowledge then that you do need to read and you do need to read a paper on that. Um, but definitely, I think writing is probably more useful than reading. Right, more than reading. And I said completely the opposite in the last podcast. <laughs> so if I ever find myself sitting there not knowing what to do, I take comfort in just feeling, reading something makes me feel like I'm doing something, even if I'm not sure what to do. But I... I yeah, I can completely get behind writing something as well. Do, Anna, Chris, would you agree with James on that? Yeah, I think obviously a kind of combination is 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 really good, and you, you have to draw a line at, at some point. You know, if you if you're writing a literature review, you know there's almost an infinite amount of literature you could read, and at some point you're going to have to you, you say, you know, enough is enough. I'm, I'm going to write this thing. Um, yeah, I think it's the Dunning Kruger effect, isn't it? This is where where if you know a little bit about uh, a subject you, you're, you're very confident but as, as soon as you learn a, li a little bit more the, the curve goes down and actually the, the more you know the less confident you are until you get yeah, to, to realize absolutely. disease super interesting yeah yeah absolutely and also as well if you are going to do reading though i think also varying your subject matter i think we can just end up down kind of slightly tunnel vision whereas uh, broadening that out as well can can give you a different perspective and look chloe is this is this something that you already do, or? Um, I think um, I would definitely agree with James that I'm a big talker. So during my MSc, for example, I had a study buddy, and um, we would just talk at each other for probably like a whole day before we even wrote a word down, because then we could ask each other questions, and it was just it made the process so much faster. So. Sometimes I do, I'm, I'm a really slow writer and I do get crippled by the fact that I don't know as much as I'd like to. So um, I do kind of just go off and have a chat with myself and I do look a bit 
odd <laughs> but yeah that's that's my approach yeah and that's that's a trap to fall into isn't it the whole i can't write because i don't know anna come like what do I you was just, i was just gonna compare a phd to having a baby and we've been comparing phds before <laughs> we started the webinar to having a baby and what i find i've always felt very guilty i have two children for not reading enough about parenting but what I've realized is that many of my friends and family who have babies and read tons get really paranoid and really worried about how they should parent. And lots of my friends and myself, who I probably read speech therapy things, and for, I, I feel super guilty that I don't read. But what I've realized I, is that I find it sometimes easier to just get on and be a mum <laughs> so I don't ruminate and tear my hair out about how to do it I just do it which for me emotionally seems more manageable and um, but I think as James said there are times when you need to read more there are times when you need to read less and again also um, as Adam said reading slightly outside of your realm is really healthy so one of the things I started doing actually midway through is I started doing um, regular reviews for an ear, nose and throat magazine. So they asked me to read um, and just summarize in 150 words uh, a couple of speech therapy articles from various speech therapy journals. And it means that I have to read things that are not directly related to dementia and speech therapy, but it meant that I actually ended up reading things that are really transferable and really interesting and led me down paths I hadn't thought of. So it's quite neat. And I get a box of wine every year. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and I mean, there's that old adage, isn't there? But a good thesis is a finished one. And so even if you're sitting there unable to write, just write what you can. It's better to write something than nothing at all. And, and you can always go back and revise. This is, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? Thank you, James. Chris, let's come to you for your first tip. Okay, so I was uh, I was trying to think about what I found most helpful going through, and I think one of the things I did was quite early on. One of the postdocs in the lab at the time um, suggested I do this, which was to set up PubMed alerts for particular terms that I was interested in researching. Um, so basically, every day that there's a new research article published about semantic dementia or frontotemporal dementia or primary progressive aphasia I get an email with the, the papers that have been published in the last 24 hours on those subjects straight into my inbox and I, I've, I've still got this set up to this day um, and I, I think that's really really simple thing to do but one of the most helpful things that I found in staying up to date with the latest research um, it's you know it's, it's a, a very nice succinct summary it's, it's only a couple of papers each day and I would just go and have a quick look at the abstracts. If, if there's a paper that I'm really excited about reading, I'll, I'll, I'll mark that to, to have a look at later. But um, yeah, I think that's one of the things that really simple to do, but I found really, really helpful. Practical. I've, I've done the same. I think you can do it on, uh, I can't remember what you just said you do. I, I, you can do it in Google as mm. well. Yeah. I've done the, exactly the same thing. Does anybody else have anything like that that they've done, that kind of practical system? James? Mm. Not necessarily, but I do, I check all the hashtags um, on Twitter again. I mean, I go on about Twitter. I'm not on commission. But, um, 
it's really it's really good and informal the great thing about twitter is it forces academics to write things very succinctly which they're never forced to do otherwise so it's genius you get everything sort of straight into your brain but if you run through a few hashtags um and unfortunately a lot of them are about like american politics you hashtag them but there are some gems in there all the latest stuff comes up and you can follow all the key journals because they all have accounts and they all tweet out everything that comes out so i found that really useful um but again the, the pubmed alerts are actually probably a better version better version of that more systematic at least yeah um I think hashtags are a bit forgotten about. We all use them in our stuff, but I mean, remembering to actually search on them to find interesting things and I think is, is something we often don't do. But again, I think the, there are tools online that you can do to set up alerts for certain hashtags as well. Thanks, Chris. Um, okay, we're going to come round back to the start of the circle again and come to you again. Actually, no, we're going to come to you, James. For your second top tip, I remember I didn't, I wasn't going to go around in order. I'm going to come to you. James for number two. Okay. Um, so my second one, again, not going to work for everyone. And that's cool is to teach. So I started GTA in um, first year, first term, got straight in there. Um, you, you probably won't love it at first because I think what's, what happens fairly early on is people get put in, you know, first year undergraduate seminars where you ask about the reading and no one's done the reading and then there's some silence and then you tell them about the reading. But gradually, you know, you start, you get a bit known, you start to get invited to give lectures on your specific area. And the joy of this is that you learn loads through it. You, there's nothing to make you learn a subject well, like being forced to stand in front of a room of people and pretend that you know more than anyone else about it. Um, and I think actually even today, um, my students probably don't fully appreciate that most of the modules I lead end up in a paper. So while over the course of those few months while we're going through certain ideas, it's also really useful for me for working through them. And by the end of a module, I've usually got a paper about something we focused on during the module. So it's great for you. Um, it's just brilliant practice in general in terms of speaking and presenting your ideas coherently. And also it's really cool to engage in a different side of a department's life. So often as a PhD student, you're in the sort of, you know, especially in a bigger department, you're in the PhD student silo. Um, and as soon as you're involved in the teaching in a meaningful way, you're into a different set of meetings, interacting with a different set of people. You see a different side of the administration and how knowledge generation and transfer really works. Um, so there are loads and loads of benefits for you for teaching. I think most people think of it as sort of, a way to up your finances through the PhD, but actually there are loads more benefits than that. I think it can give you some confidence as well, can't it? Particularly if you're going to have to start to present later on um, and you don't want to be one of those people that turns down opportunities to speak because you're, the, you know, you're not very confident about it. I think building up your confidence in through teaching where you can then makes you more willing to jump at opportunities to speak when you can and that raises your profile and 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 I think if seeing people sit and listen to you gives you more confidence in in the rest of your work and your writing as well and you start to realize that you you do know your subject matter. Um, yeah, it works it works really well and I think also you, re you learn really quickly that actually just by virtue of being at a uni and being the person stood at the front of the room when everyone comes in all of a sudden there's, you have a sort of ethos of expertise and all, and all of a sudden 
people expect you to know a lot anyway I mean I, I remember the first my first year of my PhD giving a lecture on on dementia and a geriatrician who I was teaching said obviously you know more about this than me and I just thought wow what a con <laughs> well you know there is this thing of just being stood at the front of the room and saying this and you do know a fair bit already in the first year of your PhD um, and so it does give you that confidence and it teaches you a lot about how to communicate your ideas. I totally agree. I think it, you, you talked a lot about what you get from it, but also what the students get from it. And I think it's a great way of disseminating your work as well. I think one of the reasons I decided to do a PhD as a speech and language therapist was because I wanted to impact my profession. So what I find really great about teaching as a clinical academic speech therapist is I can I can teach I teach speech and language therapists so I can uh, disseminate my work to them I can help them understand the breadth of the, my, their role I teach like you say um, James you know often I've I teach on modules that are, have medics in them I teach on modules that have other professionals in them and many of those other professionals don't know about the role of the speech and language therapist with things like primary progressive aphasia and the rare dementias in particular where we have a great big role in terms of intervention so it's actually i found it a really um great outlet to inspire and disseminate and feel confident as well thank you james um i'm gonna come to chris next chris for your second tip um okay so i think my next suggestion would be to take some time to focus on your career post PhD and I, I think I remember at points during my PhD I felt very guilty when I would try to think about my next steps and then what I was going to do for postdoc and if I was wasting you know research time when I should be thinking about what, what would come next but I, I really think that's the wrong attitude to have actually and I, I think PhD is, is a weird academia as a whole is a weird time where you're, you're on these fixed term contracts that you wouldn't be on in, in most other sectors so I think it's really important that you, you take the time to to plan out what would what you'd like to do next, what you'll need to do for your CV to get there. Um, we know that fellowship applications, grant applications, can probably take up to a year in the making. So, so having that that foresight, that plan to take some time out each week, maybe each each fortnight, just to work on what you want to where you want to go and not feeling guilty about that being time away from your PhD, I think it's really important. That's an interesting point, isn't it? It's, it's about how far ahead do you think and at what point do you think it? I, I know from talking to some people that they, they can't see beyond the next three months, to be quite honest, and haven't got a clue about what they're going to do post PhD. Do you find it, it is helpful to at least have some clue of that, Chris? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I just I just think it's really un, unfair that a lot of PhD students, you know, get given stipends, which is great, but they're, they're not that lucrative. And, and you're, you're working exceptionally hard for not for not very much money. And then I think on top of that, if you then sort of fall off this cliff edge, when you, when you finish all of that work, you're burnt out, and you're at the end of your PhD, and you don't have something lined up next. I think that's, that's really cruel. So I, I really think that we should be encouraging people to, to have those plans in place early on. And I'd, I'd encourage people to take, you know, even just half an hour a week, half an hour a fortnight, just, just and mark that as, okay, this is career time or, or next steps time. I need, I need to, th this week, I'm going to 
change, edit my CV this, this week. I'm going to email this person to see if they might have opportunities in, in this sort of research area afterwards. Just do one thing a week, perhaps, just, just to focus on your future. I think that's really important. Absolutely. And Anna, I'm, I'm vaguely recalling a conversation you and I had probably six, 12 months ago now about in the cafe, the cafe, Welcome Trust's cafe culture conversations about academic careers and how they sh ideally there ought to be some kind of new, some kind of new job plan that, that combined a job with a PhD. So when you came out the other end, there was some long, there was a new type of a new type of contract that involved a PhD with a job that went with it for afterwards. So you could have a, at least a five year contract with a couple of years work afterwards to, to guarantee something. I mean, those, those kind of jobs don't exist. And where I guess many, many of us are lucky in so much as they end up working for supervisors who think you're so great that they find ways to keep you is, is so often the case, but not everybody. I mean, as you, Chris, it is, it is worrying that people do drop off the edge then. And that's why so many people are lost, lost to academia or lost to dementia, particularly because those career structures are tricky. So taking time out to think about that early on, would you agree, Anna? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It, it kind of links in with my second top tip, which was don't be too hard on yourself. And because well, one, go on, let's move into that. Go on. Well, I moved into, well, basically, I, I guess what I was thinking, I meet a lot of the people in my department who want to do PhDs and they think that when you do a PhD, you're, you know, just getting the funding that means that you're this incredibly wise, clever, immensely, like you've, you've, you've hit the top. It's, you know, you're at the pinnacle of your career. But actually what I found really helpful is to reformulate the PhD and actually say, no, no, the PhD is actually a training program in a way to train you in research methods to prepare you for the next stage of your career. And when I've spoken to people like that and formulated it like that, it's also made it seem less scary. So many of the people I've spoken to are thinking about doing PhDs. One of the things, one of the big barriers has been they're just scared of whether they can do it. And when I've described it much more like a training program, they've realized that that's more achievable, more doable. Um, and I've actually also realized that I didn't need to know everything before I started. The, P the point was that I'd learn it whilst I was doing the PhD. And with that came learning how to build my clinical academic career. And I think thinking about what you can bring to your uh, domains that aren't just within your research is really helpful. So I, during my PhD, I, I realized that this is what, this is the time to do all the things that I can't do when I was like a clinician. So for example, what I really wanted to do was one day sit on a NICE guideline. So um, I, the, a NICE guideline committee advert came up and I applied for it. And I was on a NICE guideline committee during my PhD. And it was really fun and really exciting. But now it looks quite, it also looks quite good on my CV, both clinically and academically, and it's contributed to my career development, but it wasn't totally research. So I think that idea of, you know, making that time to plan for your career and not being hard on yourself, thinking you should actually know everything was a really helpful strategy that my supervisor actually really kept reinforcing. So I probably was quite lucky in that way. Chloe. 
is this is this something that I mean how does that how does that advice sit with you um it's really nice actually because um I I had a similar experience I came into the office I was like oh I've got a PhD there we are I'm sorted great let's do this um and then lots of people were just like no 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 this is like the first step on a different ladder <laughs> and I was like what so it was it was adjusting my expectations and it did um kind of bring me that awareness of you need to think about the next steps and I think that's why it's really helpful to get advice from you guys who've been through it because it does feel reassuring to know that you can work on those steps without it really encroaching onto your research time because it's all part of it I guess as you say like the the analogy of using it like a training program you know as you were saying I was feeling more and more reassured as you were talking so that was a really helpful tip. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Anna. She's useful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chloe. Okay, uh, so we're on to the third and final round of tips now. So I'm going to come back to you, Chris. Okay, so my third tip is touches on uh, a point James raised earlier about, about teaching. And um, so for me, at the start of my PhD, I really struggled with public speaking. I absolutely hated it. I had... I had a panic attack the first time I, I tried to do anything. It was it was awful, um, and it's something I've I still don't particularly enjoy to the, to this day. But I've I'm, I sort of made a rule for myself that after that that I would never say no to an opportunity. To to if anyone invited me to go talk somewhere, I'd always say yes. You know, if I if I could within reason. Um, and alongside that, I love data. So I've been keeping a spreadsheet of all the talks that I've ever given, which is like 50 now. Um, but I give a subjective rating of my performance. I give like different metrics on each, on each row of the spreadsheet. And it's quite nice because it fluctuates. And sometimes I give a, a bad talk. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I, I don't feel so confident. Sometimes I feel really confident. It's nice looking at, at the different variables that might help explain that. Um, and it's also nice looking if you plot it you can sort of see a, a trend upwards in terms of how I think it's going how confident I feel there's it's not completely linear there's a few blips in there but it's it, it, it's it's quite nice and so I, I guess sort of the, the the message I would say is that the PhD is a really good opportunity for you to practice things that you're not good at and nobody expects you to be perfect everyone is so sympathetic to you because we all know what it's like to be standing in front of uh, an audience it's it's a genuinely scary thing but by and large people are, are going to be kind to you if, if, if it looks like you're struggling uh, as I was at, at, at certain points um, they're, they're not out to get you they're, they're there to be supportive a lot of the time and I think it's a it's a really good opportunity that you don't necessarily have so much afterwards to, to, to really sort of try to cultivate those skills and, and get comfortable or as comfortable as you can and in, in those sorts of environments so uh, so building up your confidence whilst you've still got the the kind of if you like that safety blanket of being able to say i'm a phd student so then when you're yeah. talking at the big conferences later anna's anna's desperate to <laughs> to chip in here go on anna <laughs> i've seen chris talk so many times and he's a brilliant speaker and <laughs> thanks <Anna. laughs> me, um, i wondered if you're tracking your own feeling about how you're going do you not isn't that a bit subjective should you not get an objective rating as well 
Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, ideally, ideally, we'd have independent raters of my performance, but, uh, but I haven't gone quite that deep yet. And I, I mean, there's a load of different metrics. I try to measure, try to try to capture how well I think it's been received by the audience. Try to like things like how well did I sleep the night before? Um, you know, how much? I think even how much coffee had I had in the in the yeah. morning? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's quite micro. <laughs> wow, and and you feel amazing after that, right? I mean, I I absolutely 100% agree with you on this I I was asked to give a talk to a hospital trust board and at the time I, I got this dropped on me very late at night the night before this is years ago 10 years ago now but I was asked to, to present to a trust board about MRSA and their, their MRSA rates we'd just finished a review of this hospital and I was the one asked to give a feedback to them after my colleague had phoned in sick and I got these slides sent to me at midnight the night before and the trust board decided it would be better if they got everybody senior from the hospital to come in and get these results together. So there was every consultant from the hospital, all the board, the non-execs, and it was an absolute car crash. I mean, I, I literally nearly passed out on the, at the lectern that they'd laid out and everything. And after that, I, I avoided like the plague every speaking opportunity for years afterwards i mean i had some amazing opportunities to go talk in different countries and at conferences and things like that and i absolutely flat refused i would come out in a cold sweat even just at the idea of speaking and it it took me a long time to build that confidence back up so i think if you are going to speak definitely making sure you've prepared you know i mean mm -hmm preparation is absolutely the key you've got to really own that slide set and be confident on your subject matter uh, and I think if you do that and you do a good job it's it's a skill for life is that I mean I think young young people I said this is an old bloke young people are great I mean they get confidence uh they, you know they get opportunities to sort of right from school now standing in front of the school and talking is something they you know that's a key skill from an early age and if you can do that in a PhD absolutely 100% agree i'm mostly over my phobia now mostly what about you chloe are, are you do you do you take every opportunity to talk are you a, are you a good presenter um well i mean as we've mentioned i do uh get the odd velcro mouth when i get really nervous um but i mean i've done a few presentations before and i've always felt like i was sort of quaking inside but the feedback's been like were you nervous and it's been a real like disparity between how I felt and how other people thought I, I, I presented so um, I did get some really good advice from a clinical uh, psychologist who just said fake it until you make it and I had a presentation a few months back and I just I did and five minutes in I started to get those nerves building out the, all this life was going from my mouth I was like, oh gosh here we go um, and then I just started to act really relaxed and I sort of leant back on the chair and, and then within two minutes I sort of resetted and I was absolutely fine and it went really okay then. So, Not overthinking it. I think whilst you want to prepare, <laughs> kind of not, not overthinking it is, is important. I don't know. And if you, I mean, and if this really is uh, a problem for you, you know, if you really are a shy kind of person or you really can't do this, it's all good and well us sitting here saying go present, but you you just can't 
I think there are uh, courses out there that people can help. You can see people and get help with this. And I know a few people that have turned to things like performing and acting, like getting involved in local amateur dramatics and things like that has made new friends and done it in a safe way. But yeah, most, you can't... most universities have courses on how to present. And I did one actually. And they advised me that, that the loud and piercing voice that my husband hates was actually an attribute. <laughs> so I feel better about my life. And the children love it, right? They love the shrill <laughs> sound. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I think that's, that's a, good, a good piece of advice. Uh, Anna, we're going to come to you for your third and final top tip. So my third and final um, top tip is make friends or network, as it's called in the profession. And um, I didn't really think I had to, you know, I, I didn't really understand the value of it, but I really love people. So automatically I'm a bit of a chatterbox. It's a professional risk as a speech therapist, but it's been immensely useful for things like building uh, links with people who I could then go to when I was planning my future career, my next steps, but also within my PhD. So one concrete example is Chris. So I met Chris just before I started my PhD and um, I, we, we've become colleagues and friends. And one of the problems I had on my PhD was that I found statistics incredibly overwhelming and difficult and I'm not very good at it. I'm really good at talking to people, but I find statistics really challenging. And I realized over the course of my PhD that I don't actually have to be good at everything if I can find people who can help me be good at things. So I have met with Chris on another, a number of occasions and he's given me support and advice around statistics and made me feel much more confident about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. Because I really, I know I still remain and forever will remain one of those people. I, it's terribly stereotypical as a female, and I hate that, that it's, it's what I'm worried about. I did get an A in my GCSE maths. Look, just, just putting that out there. <laughs> but... <laughs> Chris I, doesn't believe you. <laughs> I, oh, so I, I, th I think you're aging yourself, Anna, because uh, I think they've used a, a numbers system for GCSEs for oh, quite no. a while now. So, so. <laughs> what a nine? Isn't it a nine? Or oh, no, an eight, an eight. I don't know. <laughs> thank you Anna so I, I think that's that's good advice make friends network and if you if you seek out people who can who can help you and, and I, I know we've talked a little bit about or James has talked a bit about Twitter no I'm teasing <laughs> um, but Twitter's a great place for stuff like that and and I'm conscious as well that there are other online platforms that are good for this with the research community LinkedIn and things like that as well um, okay, James. Uh, so, uh, no, I'm going to come back to you at the end, Chloe. James, let's let's go to you for your last. Okay. Uh, I think if it makes you feel uh, any better about the gender stereotypes, I also, I mean, whatever the number equivalent of illiteracy is, I have that. <laughs> show show me a number, and I start sweating. Um, so my uh, my final point was, which I think sort of builds on a few things that people have said is to sort of keep a sense of perspective on, on what a PhD actually is. So, a, you know, a PhD is a, 
is a qualification. We we exist in universities, so it's really really good. But in in the real world, not not only do most people not know what it is, those who do probably think you know you're just a glorified student. So I think it's good to keep a sense of perspective on it. And the reason for that is that I I saw over the years lots lots of awful cases. I mean, people talk about the PhD in mental health. They talk about you know people you know really breaking down like even in front of you just collapsing and these these things do happen um and then we exist in that culture of sort of wellness you know balance mindfulness all this sort of this nonsense as if the problem is it is yours it's not it makes total sense for you to not always be having a good time because you're not paid very much you're massively overworked especially in your first year, you probably are out of your depth, right? Because if you were the expert, you'd write your PhD now and submit it. You wouldn't do another two years of it. So you still have a way to go because it's a training process and you're going to get loads better and you'll look back and think, oh, I was daft then and now I know so much more. Um, and you probably think the same again in five years' time. So I think it's, it's good to keep a sense of perspective to remember that some of it's not going to be great, but that's not you know that's not your inadequacy that's that's a system that you're in that isn't great and doesn't treat people that great all the time um the thing you can do about that is i think what's already been said have a community that go you know go in make friends people who are going through the same the same types of things as you that's what really gets you through it in the end i think I realised this a lot towards the end of my PhD that, you know, all this sort of academic methods, theory stuff, well, probably wasn't as important as the people. It was all the, the network of people around me have really pulled me through it. Everything meaningful that I got out of the PhD came from, came from the people around me. So yeah, just, you know, you get what you get, what you give really offer to review someone's paper, offer to have a coffee with someone and people will reciprocate. Finding that kind of, I mean, obviously, you can look to your supervisors and they're there. But I think also as well, that whole, your mentors don't have to be your supervisors as well. I think having somebody who's kind of one step removed, who you can go to and talk about things is, is, is helpful. Thank you very much, James. We've, I mean, that's, I've got, I've got a list here. I'm going to recap, but before I go back to the recap, I want to uh, come back to you, Chloe, uh, because obviously you know, you're nine months in. Um, before we move on to the, the summary, is there anything, any questions? Have you got any questions particularly for people? Um, I think all your top tips are really good. I've actually already written some down to go and do immediately. <laughs> um, so no, I, I can't think of any to mind. I think, um, I think your point about uh, building a community around you of people who are in the same position is so key because even as only nine months in I did feel a difference I think about two months in I sort of hadn't really met people who were doing PhDs and then after that I was part of this little community where everybody's messaging each other every day and just you know I remember like uh crying at my computer when I was trying to do stats <laughs> and within 10 minutes I had loads of like you can do this messages and just and then within an hour, I had uh, a lecturer in statistics at Swansea giving me a Zoom call. So that was great. So, yeah. Thank you for all of your advice. <laughs> Just to do a quick recap on the nine top tips that we've had from everybody here today. So the first uh, one was from Anna, which is about planning. Uh, no matter how 
how great or little detail you can go into having some kind of plan to help add some structure around around that is helpful um don't worry too much for this is added from james around i think james found it particularly useful to treat this like a job and have a fixed day structure to it we know that doesn't work for everybody but if you are sitting there wondering what to do maybe trying that as a default if, if you are struggling and then work around it from there um don't just read write as well um it was one of the tips setting up alerts on the systems to keep you abreast of what's going on in your field teaching and taking opportunities to do public speaking to build your confidence whilst i'm not going to say while well, it's not, not not important but but while you've got that safety blanket of being able to fall back on well i'm a student it's i you know i'm still learning i think getting building up your confidence during that time while people are going to give you a break i think is is a good opportunity as well um don't be so hard on yourself as from Anna, and we talked about that last last week as well is you know don't exactly that don't be so hard on yourself give yourself a break you know you don't nobody expects you to know everything on day one and don't be afraid to go and talk to your supervisor um uh, what else have we got in here uh, about creating friends and networks and surrounding yourself with people understand we talked about this last in the episode two weeks ago about Family are great for emotional support, but they haven't got a clue when it comes to really understanding what you're doing. <laughs> Was that your point, Chloe? Your, your sister works in finance and... Yeah, just, you know, she throws tax jargon at me and I'm like, okay, okay. They, just, they finally just realised you're not going to be able to work in A&E at the end of becoming a doctor. <laughs> well, my mum does say in Tesco sometimes that I'm going to be a medical doctor and I'm like, mum, no. <laughs> Stop saying this, but I think she likes it, so I'll give that one to her. <laughs> yeah, mums have it. And main, maintaining perspective, and we did talk about careers as well last week about you know money can be hard, particularly those universities that pay stipends in quarterly chunks, and if you've got you know just about making ends meet, having a financial pressure as as well as putting pressure on yourself to meet deadlines and and study is tricky. So. But there's, there's help in the institutions. I don't think anybody should be embarrassed to, to talk about money and some of these difficulties, whether that's, you know, about having some of those low moments or, you know, things that are keeping you awake at the night, whether that's, whether that's money or stress or relationships or the accommodation you're living in or, or the relationship with your supervisor, which we know they're not always perfect, is, is, is to talk about this really do talk um thank you very much everybody i i did i i went away and read a couple of blogs beforehand and some other people's top tips so i'm going to whip through 14 top tips from other people which we may or may not have covered practical things so number one maintain a healthy work-life balance as well remember to go to the pub chloe i do you go to the we talked about this before chloe does roller derby <laughs> yes <laughs> And um, <laughs> so you've got a good work life. And am I right in thinking, or is this just a stereotype? But roller derby players drink hard, right? So you um, maybe my team's the exception because they don't go to the pub. Invite them to the pub. They're like, oh, I've got to, I've got work in the morning. <laughs> okay. 
Drew Barrymore in that film about roller derby. In Drew Barrymore was really hard, and they used to drink and live hard and work hard and roller skate hard. They were so cool. It's, it's a stereotype. They're all professional people and uh, opposed to violence in real life. <laughs> so maintaining a healthy work-life balance is important. Discussing expectations with your supervisor. I think getting a good relationship with your supervisor can make all the difference and um, bribe them with cake. We talked about that last week. Um, read as much as you can. Write copious notes. Uh, find a good place to work. Um, finding a nice place to work, your spot in the library can be helpful, uh, getting your desk sorted out, particularly at the moment with uh, coronavirus and the pandemic, having the right bit of kit is particularly helpful. It's not helpful if you've got a 10-year-old laptop that crashes all the time, right, and you lose all your work. So getting your kit right, start writing early, don't leave it all for the last six months. Um, Set yourself some realistic goals, use to-do lists. The best thesis is a finished one. Uh, find supportive friends and people who understand you and don't hide from your family. Um, back up your work. Back up your work. It's just practical, right? That would be your top tip, right, Chris? You've had practical advice so far. Backup would be one of yours. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I, did, I, I remember losing two chapters of my PhD through not backing up my work, so I would, I would endorse that. I, I clearly repressed that because that would have been my top, top, top tip if, <laughs> if, 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 if I realised that close at the time. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, things have moved. I mean, most stuff's in the cloud now anyway, right? But I, I think... Yeah. Don't I think assume. the cloud. I think the cloud was around when I did my PhD. I just didn't understand what it was. Um, but anyway, um, socialize is on this list. Um, present at every opportunity. Do you know what you you guys have ticked all the boxes? Present at every opportunity is on here as well. Don't compare yourself to others um, is an important one as well. And don't stress. Uh, it'll all come, but don't put too high expectations on yourself. So. That's it, Chloe. You, you're, we fixed you now. You can sort. This I mean, is it. I'm just going to go find it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're set to achieve. No, I mean, in all seriousness, I, I think um, the purpose of these two podcasts really was to kind of just give people some confidence and just to show uh, a PhD is possible for everybody and all different kinds of people. And um, everybody here has come out the other side. And I think all these it's all great. You know, there might be people sat there listening going, oh yeah, well, it's all good enough for you. That's somebody's it's like in real life, but I, it really is. And I think if you can, if you can apply some of these things into your, into your working patterns, it really will help. Before we finish, I'm just going to ask really quickly, is there anything you hated about being a PhD student that you would definitely want to ditch from day? That's it. We're just ditching that. Let's go, James. Is there anything you'd want to ditch from being a student that you wish didn't exist? Procedural ethics, that can get in the scene. I think if you, e if ethics. You want to, if you want to, no, procedural ethics. Ethics are really, really important. Procedural <laughs> ethics are an absolute mess. If you want to speak to people with dementia, you're treated with, you know, scepticism that's reserved for the worst criminals. Like you're going to do something really evil. Why would you even want to speak to people with dementia? So uh, procedural ethics is a bit of a problem at the moment. But procedural ethics is going in room 101 or getting massively improved. What about you, Anna? Probably the perception that um, doing a PhD is an enormous privilege. It is a privilege, but equally, I think that in, so for example, in speech therapy, it's just a different 
career choice. Someone once said to me right at the start, well, you would do a PhD because you're really good about boasting about yourself, she said. And then she went, oh, no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, like, <laughs> promoting the discipline. I was, at, I was a bit horrified. I, was at, oh, my God. I went home and cried for a long time. <laughs> and she it, sounds terrible. I hope she's not still a friend. No, but I think it's this idea that actually <laughs> that um, she never was. It was, a, it was like a random person um, in, in the discipline. But I think it's that um, idea that actually, you know, if we were in a, any other discipline or any other profession, the, that you, this would be something we would do. And it's, I think it's really important to de disseminate and talk about things and think that, that this, is, this is a career choice. It comes back to it being a job, I think, as well. Uh, it's not, it's not something like a treat. It's a job. Absolutely. Thank you, Anna. Chris? Um, I think I'd, I'd advocate for just a fair wage instead of the stipend system that we have at the moment, which I think a is fair Absolutely. Is cruel. Um, so, so yeah, I think proper financial remuneration to PhD students for the hard work they do. Yeah. Absolutely. Chloe, have you got any, I mean, you're there right now. What do you hate about your week that you want to stop? I honestly, I'm not lying. Nothing. <laughs> you like it too. She just loves it. It's great. I do really like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, everybody, for taking the time out. Uh, Chloe, Anna, Chris, and James for joining us today. Um, in all seriousness, I think if anybody out there who's listening is struggling, there is help out there. You should turn to the people around you for support. Um, look to your university for the support that they do offer. Talk to your supervisor. Uh, we also have a WhatsApp group on our website. We have a WhatsApp early career research community. So if you are just wanting somebody to, I think somebody the other week said, I'm, I'm putting in a fellowship application. I wondered if somebody who's done there before would have a look at it. And, and she got a couple of replies and people offered. So We've got a community there to help, um, so please do join. You can find out details on how to do that through the Ask an Expert part of our website. Um, and, and even if you just want to chat with somebody, there's, there's people there who will be in the same situation as you to talk to. Um, we have profiles on all of our panelists on our website, including details on how to find them on Twitter. Uh, if you would like to ask any follow-up calls of, follow-up questions rather, of individuals, I know they're all very welcoming, so you can reach out through that platform as well. Um, and details on that are all again on our website. Finally, please do remember to like, subscribe, review our podcast, um, which you'll find on iTunes and SoundCloud and wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. And um, we'll look forward to uh, welcoming you all back again soon. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.